on a more regular basis, just taking your guys' questions where I don't have a topic, I don't have anything except for your questions from real people put into the live chat. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Everything you know on YouTube, there aren't really rules on how I have to do these things. I just sort of have to make decisions based on what seems like it'll minister to the most people and will be in line with the particular giftings and calling that I think God has given me. So uh, your feedback last week, though, was that you really want more Q&A videos, and we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. So we're going to do this today, and I hope that it's a blessing to you. I hope that you find answers to questions you had or maybe questions you didn't even expect to find. And as usual, we will put, after the video is over, a, a, a like a timestamp map in the video description. Now, if you're watching on mobile, you won't be able to do it through that video description, at least not right now. Maybe YouTube will change things in a week. But you'll have to go to the first comment, the pinned comment, and there you'll find a list of questions as well as timestamps to take you right to the things that you think that you need to know. All right, so my name is Mike Winger, and I am a pastor in Southern California who, who's made it his goal to help people learn to think biblically about everything. I like to teach and defend biblical truth, so it's both of those things. Um, I'm not that much of a preacher, in my honest opinion, as far as preaching, you know, stirring and motivating the crowds. There's some of that, but... It's more about uh, getting godly and true convictions and then trying to live those things out. And one of the ways we do that is is we try to think biblically about things. We think thoroughly and thoughtfully and carefully about them and try to come to a rounded biblical view. And so I'm not interested in pat answers. I'm interested more in, as much as possible, thorough, thoughtful, careful answers that can withstand criticism. So that being said, put your questions in the live chat. <clears throat> and thanks for joining, everybody. I'm happy to have you here with me today and I've I noticed uh, just in the live chat right before I went live that some people were asking about um, the American Gospel movie and I'll mention that so American Gospel has two films out the first and the second one and I'm in the second one but I liked the first one better <laughs> so um, they're both actually really valuable and totally worth watching the first one and second one both deal with these kind of progressive, um, total distortions of Christianity. And not just people who disagree on minor things, but actual radical, dangerous, and heretical distortions of the truth of Christianity. They're the, those who use the name of Christ to lead people away from Christ is what ultimately comes down to. Both those videos tackle those things and go into that. And I think you have to watch it, though, knowing that if that's the target... It, it's perfectly good job, job well done. But it, but you also should know that the videos, most of the people participating are Calvinists and they're not only going to teach you, you know, to come off the cliff of this progressive um, or, or prosperity preaching stuff, but they're also going to be trying to make the safe ground look like Calvinism. And I'm not a Calvinist. That's actually why, one of the reasons why I was in the second video is to try to round things out a little bit by having a non-Calvinist. But the second video is actually more strongly Calvinist than the first. So you have to have this awareness as you're watching the content. Still think it's worthwhile. Still think it's worth watching. There's my thoughts on it. Um, I actually really liked the first one and really liked the first, um, most of the second one. There's just these certain points where it's like, oh man, why do we have to make it so strongly and peculiarly Calvinistic in some of these ways when that's not, uh, these, these, are, these are secondary issues. All right, well, let's go to your guys' questions. Um, once I get one of them over, you're putting them in the live chat and the mods are scrambling right now to get, <laughs> to get the questions out to me. I guess I'll have to wait just a moment longer. Um, 
So anyways, what do you want to talk about? How's it going? How's life? I don't have a cat cam for you just at the moment, but that's because, well, I have a cat cam. I have no cat. I have no cat. So there's the cam. There is no cat. She may come alongside a little bit later. Moxie often likes to sit next to me when I'm here because whenever I'm not sitting in my actual chair, which is the chair you just saw in the video, she wants to sit in it. So that does tend to happen. Um, let me see. Other things, a little update. While I'm waiting for someone in my mod team to send me a question, that would be great. Just one question would be really appreciated. Um, the... Um, the uh, the YouTube channel, The One Minute Apologist, I was just recently this week featured with Bobby Conway answering a couple questions, one about Bill Johnson and then one about Bethel Music. And so if you want, you can check out those really short, like under two minute videos answering those kinds of questions. And I think I'm going to pick one of your guys' questions randomly here from the live chat because I'm not getting that from AJ. AJ, reminder, you got to send me one right away or else this whole thing crashes to a halt. All right, um, how about uh, Mike Winger, we've recently, this is from Honest Conversations, we've recently been dealing with a Ruckmanite at our church who believes in hyper-dispensationalism, basically that Old Testament saints were saved by faith plus works. Thoughts? Um, let me just tackle the very concept of Old Testament saints were saved by faith plus works by saying that that's absolutely and completely opposed to what the scripture teaches in the Old and the New Testament. And so one passage I would go to here would be Romans chapter 4. Now the context of Romans chapter 4 is absolutely fantastic. Um, Paul, it's really important to him, and it should be important to us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is consistent with the Old Testament teachings. That it's consistent. And that we even see this gospel not just like it could be forced to fit together with the Old Testament, but rather that the Old Testament has been teaching these things all along. That's that's pretty significant to him. Obviously, um, the details and the clarity we have through Christ is there in, in much. It's, it's kind of like it went from blurry to clear, but it was always there. Right. So um, that's that's the 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 analogy I would use. It went from blurry to clear, but it was always there. Now, in Romans four, Paul talks about how Abraham was saved. And he uses that as a model for how everyone gets saved, meaning not that not that version of hyper-dispensationalism you talked about where <clears throat> we have Old Testament saints being saved by faith plus works, New Testament being saved by uh, grace alone or something like that. So Abraham, in chapter 4 of Romans, says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Now, in this context in Romans, flesh is synonymous with works, according to works. The works that he performs, that would be according to flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Now, that right there is a denial that Abraham was justified by works. But he goes on. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So Abraham, he simply believed and, and all he did on his part was trust, believe, and then God accounted that belief as though it was righteousness. Now, that's not saying that the faith itself is the kind of righteous quality that God requires of us. Rather, it's being accounted. He's being, uh, you know, Im you should say imputed of righteousness because of the faith that he had. And then Paul makes a distinction here. Now, that, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Okay, because if you do works, then you're owed. If, if I'm working for salvation, if I'm, I'm saved by faith plus works, well, then in some sense, I'm owed the salvation. And this is consistent even like, say, Roman Catholic 
um, the Catechism or or the the Council of Trent, where God, it's He owes us our salvation. Now they'll be careful to say only because He promised He would pay us salvation, right? But it but it is an, a payment owed. That's that's the the concept, which is because they have a works involved salvation. But Paul's gospel is different than that, and Abraham was saved in a different way. But to him who does not work, does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. This is this to me is, I mean, this is so beautiful and so uh, soul-helping when I realize that it's my faith that's accounted for righteousness. It's not my, it's not my actions. It's not my works. It's my trust. I just trust he gives, he gives me righteousness. So I don't work. I just believe. That's how I get justified. And that's Abraham. Here's the key on his conversations to the hyper-dispensationalist that you're talking about. The key is that Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. And these are two opposite categories to Paul. They're never mingled. It's never faith plus works as a means of justification before God, of, of gaining righteousness and right standing before God. That's never the case. Then you can go on and look at David, and David has the same situation. Then you can go to Romans eleven six, one of my favorite verses for this kind of conversation, where he makes it clear that, and catch this, put your thinking caps on, that philosophically, grace and works can't be mingled or mixed. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. And we're saved by grace, which means we're not saved by works. So <clears throat> that's super profound because those who try to say, well, we're saved by faith plus works. It's both. It's somehow both. Um, you know, the, the works are all done by God's grace, but yet there are works you have to do in order to earn still salvation. And, and it ends up being nonsense compared to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans eleven six. Because if it's by grace, then it is no longer of works. It's not faith plus works. It's like if it's by grace, then it's not works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Right. Otherwise, you're saying grace, but you don't mean grace. You use the term grace. I'm saying by grace, right? But I have to do all these works. Well, then that's not grace. That's just not grace saving you. And this is pretty, pretty strong case. I've never heard a good argument against this, uh, against using Romans eleven six to, you know, refute the grace plus faith plus works gospel. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Like if these words are going to hold their meanings, if work means work, then it's not by grace. If grace means grace, then it's not by works. So you can't have grace and works combined. And that's what um, many people try to force. Almost nobody says you're saved by works alone. Almost nobody says this. And even I think the the um, Judaizers of Jesus's day and of Paul's day, rather, that they would, would have said the same thing. Of course you need grace, but it also works. And Paul is here saying, you know, these, these are... These are oil and water. It's one or the other. They don't mingle. All right. Um, let's see here. I'm, I'm still. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, I don't know if maybe AJ, you had already sent this over. It's possible AJ had already sent this over and I just missed. I just missed it. Like I didn't see the notification. So forgive me if I mistreated you, my friend. Because <laughs> it says it came over like eight, seven minutes ago or something like that. So, all right. Miguel Ponce has a question. Let me uh, take you guys back to the home screen. Um, how familiar are you with Stephen Furtick and Elevation Church? Is it wrong of me to be weary of mainstream churches? I think wary is what you meant. Of mainstream churches that seem to be too seeker-friendly. Thank you and God bless. Um, 
Miguel, um, I'll, I'll be really honest with you here is I don't, first off, I don't know a ton about Stephen Furtick. I've only seen a few of his messages, like a handful, and I usually don't listen for too long. It doesn't appeal to me. I don't, maybe I'm a little bit thick. I don't understand the appeal of other people to him, his stuff. It's, it's, um, I dislike his preaching style <laughs> and, um, obviously I'm in a minority here because tons of people seem to really, really love it. I think that for someone who wants to think carefully about Christianity, Stephen Furtick's type of teaching and preaching is just like super reckless, right? And and he wants it to be and he doesn't care. That that much is clear from the videos I've seen. He doesn't care if you think he's being one-sided, if you think he's saying things wrong. He just couldn't care less. Um, my vibe on Stephen Furtick, you're asking my personal opinion, I'm going to share it, is that... Um, I, I wouldn't probably go to his church. I don't think I would want to sit under his teaching. I'm concerned about the type of allegiance that people have to him. And I've, I've heard some stories from those around him that um, the type of allegiance and submission to, to his vision sounds to me like pastoral abuse. Um, I, I'm summarizing things here. I've heard a lot of things over the years. So what, what at the end I'm going to say is this. Should you be wary of Stephen Furtick or of those who seem to be having the same kind of flavor in their ministries? Yeah, absolutely. That just seems obvious to me. It just seems obvious to me. Um, now, now someone could say, Mike, this is gossip. You're 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 coming against <laughs> those who are really loyal to Stephen Furtick. Would be like, well, you're you're touching the Lord's anointed. And to them, I just say, you don't even know what that means. Um, uh, first off, I'm not killing him. <laughs> that's that's really what that verse is about. But secondly, Stephen Furtick isn't just a private person I'm picking on. He's a public teacher who's, you know, pushing out his teachings to hundreds and thousands and millions of people. And in the same sense as somebody could be fair criticizing me publicly saying, I think Mike Winger has these problems. I think you should be watching for this when you're listening to his teaching. I think you should be careful about that. It's entirely appropriate to, you know, graciously but honestly deal with these issues openly. Yeah, so <clears throat> what I have heard from Stephen Furtick is, has, has been concerning and even if he, sometimes he gets caught in a sermon where he says stuff that's just like, like that sounds heretical. And later he'll walk it back a bit. And so maybe he would walk it back a bit. Maybe it wasn't as bad as it sounded. But let me just say this. I think he's starting fires and that that's not healthy for people. Um, and that he doesn't deal carefully with scripture, doesn't teach it in context. And then that doesn't, doesn't have a very good long-term effect, even though it may really encourage you in the moment. Find encouraging teachers that don't abuse the scripture under the goal of encouraging you, right? Like Joel Osteen, who does the same thing. He'll just abuse the text of scripture because his goal is encouragement, you know, at all costs. And um, yeah, not healthy. So John Doe has a question. I was taught Christians don't sin. First John 3, 9 says, whoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Romans is littered with talk of free from sin. This isn't common teaching. Why is it wrong? Oh, hold on. This is, this is like last week I answered that. Ah, okay. Sorry, I gotta I gotta come up with a better solution here because Facebook's Messenger, which is what we're using right now, sometimes bounces around. Vladimir Gluten. If you're interested in the answer to that question, go to last week's video. It's like the second question. Uh, Vladimir Gluten says, "How do you respond to Richard Carrier's argument that Jesus was in outer space and that the apostles were schizophrenics?" Um, his argument seems absurd, but he does have some points. Um, yeah. Um, so technically I don't think he says they're schizophrenic. He says they're schizotypal and this is supposed to make his argument sound more, more reasonable. The, the tough thing about responding to guys like Richard Carrier, for those who don't know, Richard Carrier is a, um, he is a, uh, credentialed scholar 
Um, he doesn't, to my to my knowledge, does not have a lot of respect in his field. He's definitely out on a limb with a lot of his theories. And he's pretty careful in how he presents his wacky theories. And so he'll present it like it's conjecture. Like, what if? Well, it could be. Well, perhaps. And let me just gather evidence that might point to this. And so that helps it, helps it slide by with less criticism than perhaps it deserves because he's using that scholarly language that allows them to get away with all kinds of stuff. But, um, but yeah, so Jesus was in outer space. Um, the, uh, <laughs> here's, here's what you need to do. Um, make them make their case. What we often do with apologetic stuff is we have someone who throws out like a sentence or two. Oh, well, um, you know, Mark was, someone told me Mark, Mark was um, uh, an extended passion play. And their, their theory was that the Gospel of Mark was literally a play. It was a play. And now me, I feel the onus at that point to stop and go, oh gosh, so it's not historical. It's a play. I, I better have all these, all these arguments against Mark being a play. But I think what's more important is that this guy with his wacky weird theory needs to come up with arguments that he's right first. That's his claim. He should defend it. So first find out what the claim is how he defends these types of claims and then you're going to build a case um, in response to Richard Carrier there's tons of stuff online it's too much and too detailed for me to get into tons of stuff online um, from even scholars who've responded to him occasionally but he is his stuff is is so out there it appeals to I'm just gonna be honest online atheists in particular and, and agnostics who feel like they're getting good info because he has this scholarly sort of feel to him although when you hear him in person he, he doesn't maybe sound that way but but it has that vibe in the end, um, if you have been influenced anybody by Richard Carrier, um, you are being influenced by the 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 lowest common denominator in the in 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 this debate in this discussion. He's super intelligent. He has an incredible ability to um, you know remember off the top of his head all these different quotes from all these different church history locations and different different you know sources, extra biblical sources, historical sources, that kind of thing. But the connections he make are unjustified. And that's where you're going to find his weakness. Look for how he connects this to that. That's where you're going to find the weakness. Uh, yeah. So yeah, just about anything you read about the historicity of Jesus or the resurrection of Christ, anything's going to argue against Richard Carrier by default because he's denying all that. Um, Sonic Mixer 85 says, in Romans 5, 12 to 21, does our nature inherit the guilt of Adam's sin or are we only guilty of our own sin? In Hebrews 2.17 and 4.15, did Christ's human nature inherit Adam's sin or just desire sin like us? Okay, um, these are two very deep questions. Let me tackle at least the first one. I don't know if I'll be able to get into all of them because one of them, I'm not sure if I have all my answers ready for that one. But um, So the question of sin nature is, is, a, is a tough one. And I struggled with it for a while because um, I was taught the doctrine of sin nature, which is like the Augustinian doctrine and on the other side um i didn't really see a lot of biblical support like often when i would look for say say i, I i'm taught the trinity and i go well is this really you know in the scripture i i look for scripture and i find this massive support but with the doctrine of sin nature the idea that in adam i actually did sin this is one perspective on sin nature that i actually committed sin so i'm born with not just sinful inclinations, but with actually guilt for having committed sins before I was born, somehow in Adam. That view, I just found really thin support on, in Scripture. Um, you know, you have in, you know, in Psalms where David says, in 
in, in, uh, in sin, my mother conceived me. But I remember reading that, thinking I want to defend the doctrine of sin nature and going, oh, this, is, this is really stretching the verse far to get our particular doctrine of sin nature out of that one verse. The other passage in probably the number one passage is Romans 5. So let's read this passage and then I'll talk about it briefly. At least this is my thoughts on it. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, remember this. We're going to come back to that in a minute because there are other translations that handle that differently. Because all sinned. Um, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Remember this phrase too. There are those who didn't sin according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. I'm just going to say real quick, that seems a defeater for the traditional Augustinian doctrine of sin nature. Because I did sin in Adam. So how is it that there are those who didn't sin according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam? That seems to be a challenging verse. Um, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and by the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded to many. <clears throat> and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense, Adam, resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. And again here, Adam, he, he did one offense, and there are those who didn't sin like Adam. So they're not all committing that one offense, but they're all sort of included in the consequences. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. You mentioned all the way to verse 21, so I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, Keep reading. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. That would be Adam's offense. One man, Adam. Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That's the purpose of the law is to show us our sin. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, um, oh, and I happen to be in the New King James Version. I didn't, I just, that was random. Okay, we have this parallel between Jesus and, and, and Adam, Jesus and Adam, right? Adam brought, he sinned and everyone died. Jesus, his one act of obedience, as opposed to Adam's act of disobedience, he brings life to everybody. Okay, so there's this like representation happening. Adam represents us all in the garden. Jesus represents us all on the cross. And everyone who trusts in him gets the benefit of his death and resurrection. But sin nature, what is it? Um, okay, this verse uh, I highlighted for you. Where was it? Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Here's a debate. When you say all sinned, do you mean that when the one man sinned, all of us sinned? Meaning that I actually sinned in Adam. And that's actually how August, Augustine did understand this passage. But part of the reason he did was because he didn't understand Greek. Augustine didn't like Greek. He didn't want to learn Greek. And so he had, a, he had like a, a, I've read that he had a tiff with his Greek teacher. And so he didn't really pursue that. A brilliant man though. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to knock Augustine, but he is still a man. And 
he was using the Latin Vulgate. So Jerome's translation, that's what he's using. And in his translation of this passage, Romans 5.12, it says, because um, in Adam, we all sinned uh, or something similar to that. It's actually, ironically, when Catholicism wants to support the doctrine that they have of original sin, which is the Augustinian doctrine, they actually, in the catechism, they quote the Latin Vulgate version of Romans 5.12. And that was one of the first things that really alerted me to this issue. I was reading the catechism and I thought, Hey, and I'm not Catholic for those who don't know, but I, I'm studying it. And um, the, uh, the, the, the fact is they're weighing a, a big doctrine on what is actually a mistranslation that is, is known. This is known. But the Latin Vulgate, since the Council of Trent, is the official doctrinal source for the Catholic Church when it comes to quoting scripture. Like, that's just the way it is. And so they're stuck with it, whether it's right or not because of the council's decisions that they've made in the past. Um, so anyways, long story short, one of the key texts that influenced the key guy that influenced a lot of other people was based on a mistranslation. And we know this. This is not like a surprise to anybody who studied the topic. I think then, as I don't, I want to move on to other questions, so I'm going to say it shortly. Uh, briefly, I think that I didn't, I don't have guilt. I'm not born with guilt as though I had already sinned. I think that those who were babies, I did this in my, my um, few videos, two videos on are infants saved when they pass away, if they die at that age. I think that they have no actual guilt, even though they do have a sin nature, they don't carry guilt. And so I think those are two different issues. I think we are guilty when we each individually sin. I think in addition to that, we're born with a sin nature that is inclined to sin for various reasons. I am just naturally inclined to be sinful. That doesn't mean that I've already sinned. There's a point, an age of accountability. I dealt with that in a recent video. Maybe someone could toss it in the live chat for you guys. Um, <clears throat> that age of accountability happens. That doesn't really make a lot of a lot of sense on the sin nature view that August, Augustine had. And the reason that's the reason why he thought babies had to be baptized to be saved. Because he had this whole wrong view, I think, of sin nature. So I'm at a place now, my understanding of theology, where I am able to say I don't, I reject the Augustinian view of sin nature. I do not take the Pelagian view, for those who know the term, I don't take that view at all. I do think that had any of us been in the garden, we probably would have made the same decision as Adam, and he did represent us all, and so we all share in his fate, because he is our representative, like a proxy, one who goes on our behalf. But I'm guilty of the sins that I actually commit when I have the chance to commit them, not before that. Now, the next question you have, which I, I don't think I'll have time to get into, <clears throat> um, partly because I don't know that I'm going to have the right answer for you, is about Jesus and his nature. Um, I would say this, my first answer helps with the second answer. Did Jesus have guilt <clears throat> the way we have guilt with sin nature? Well, my answer is we don't have guilt in that sense with sin nature. So he's born under Adam, born under the law, born with the um, sinful inclinations of the flesh that he has to actually be tempted with and he denies. And then he overcomes them. And so my view of sin nature, I think, makes it a lot easier to answer the question about Jesus. All right. <clears throat> that was kind of a heavy stuff, heavy uh, section. <coughs> Pardon. Um, I'm not sick, guys. I'm just coughing because I'm talking a lot. All right. Sonic Mixer. I hope that helped you out. And then now uh, Ethan Tucker has a question. How do you interpret the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5? <clears throat> um well, I would, I would like to refresh my mind and my thoughts on these to actually give you like a real good interpretation. But let's run through them real quick. Here's just a quick thought that might you might find beneficial. Um, 
Jesus teaches them and his largest teaching section in the gospel of Matthew, it's like three chapters. He just goes into lots of detail, uh, uninterrupted. And he says in the opening of it, his beginning of his teaching is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And then finally, blessed are those um, who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he segues from that into a specific encouragement for his followers who will be persecuted. How do I take these Beatitudes? Um, let's see. I, I actually noticed Peter Williams on Twitter talking about how in, uh, depending on your your pronunciation grid for Greek, they they actually rhyme. There's a rhyming structure in these, which made it that much easier for his followers to remember. But we can look at the first part, right? What are the qualities of the person who's blessed? And we put them all together. They're poor in spirit. They mourn. They're meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And then they're persecuted. Now, some people see a progression here. That this these these eight things are actually like a progression. A progression. Um, so people encounter Jesus Christ and they realize their spiritual poverty. They, they, through the law, they realize their sin, their conscience, they're aware that they need grace. So they're poor in spirit, but there's, they're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom. Like Jesus said, uh, I will, I've come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. So they're the poor in spirit. And it's those who recognize their poverty, their spiritual poverty. They're the ones that are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then they mourn because they're grieving over their sin. They're aware of their wickedness. They're aware of their need for God and they're mourning and they're grieving. So maybe that's them repenting, them them coming to salvation. They're meek. Maybe that's perhaps them humbling themselves in, in, in response to the gospel of Christ. Lord, you're the Lord. You're my Lord. I need you. I offer nothing of myself. So some people see that view there. They're, they hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're choosing God's kingdom. They're choosing to serve him. They're choosing to know God. So this is like walking someone through salvation. They see their spiritual poverty. It grieves them. They humbly come to God and they decide, I want you, Lord. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're merciful. This perhaps is a response to the gospel. They, they live out the mercy. <clears throat> They're pure in heart because of the work of the Holy Spirit that God is doing in them. They're peacemakers because of the, the, the love that they're now showing as, as a result of this salvation. And then, of course, they are persecuted because that's going to follow those who live, desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. So this may actually be like a progression. Um, but it was describing ultimately as the type of people that the kingdom of God is for. And that I think is the main point and the benefits they get. So I went through the qualities they have, the benefits they get are, they're going to get the kingdom of heaven. They're going to be comforted. They're going to inherit the earth. They're going to be filled because they're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They'll get that very desire. They're going to obtain mercy. They're going to see God. They're going to be called the sons of God. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So yeah, I think that it's describing followers of Jesus who respond to the gospel and put their trust in him. Jesus came to bring us that salvation. All right, Simone uh, Stein says, Hi, Pastor Mike. What are your thoughts on the two trees in the Garden of Eden representing both the law and the gospel in Genesis 3? The tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge equals the law and the tree of life equals Christ. That's really interesting. I know I've heard that somewhere before. Um, I don't think I've really given it a lot of thought, Simone. So... The law, I guess the, the, the law does connect to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil conceptually because the law does bring more awareness, a fuller awareness of sin and, and, and righteousness. So that I could see a connection there. Um, 
but the tree of the tree of life does that represent the gospel? I mean, it represents eternal life. So I let me say this. I would see there are some valid points that you can make a parallel there, a soft parallel there. I don't know how strongly I would present it if I was to teach it. I would say, here's something to think about. Maybe this is a connection. I wouldn't um, demand that everyone acknowledge that, that my connection is legitimate. Conceptually, there's connections there. The question is, does God intend for us to make that particular parallel? And that I feel a little bit less certain about. Diana Kay says, does it say in the Old Testament that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire? Um, <clears throat> so I think that in answering this question, so in the in the Gospels we read this, um, I think it's in John where it said that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. I think it's John 1. In that passage, people often think the fire represents um, like the fire of the Holy Spirit or like the fire of revival or the fire of purifying the believer's heart. I think rather it's... The, the Holy Spirit is the indwelling of the Spirit and, the, and, and the, that relationship we have in, in Christ with God. But also, the fire is like a separate category. I think the fire represents judgment. I think that the Jesus, he's, he's got his first coming and, and his second coming. And in both of those, there is this like, you know, work of the Holy Spirit, but there's also fire or judgment that comes. Judgment that comes upon Israel for rejecting Christ and for crucifying their Messiah and then still not receiving the gospel after for those who didn't receive it after it's preached. And then, of course, in the second coming of Christ, when that time of fire comes, I think that that's primarily fulfilled in the second coming, though, when judgment, Jesus comes to judge, to take over the world and to destroy his enemies. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. So is that predicted in the Old Testament now that we have that concept of fire? Absolutely. Uh, lots of scripture in the Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord and the day of the wrath of God. And it speaks heavily about the time of God's judgment of the world. And so in that sense, yes, um, fire is predicted. And the uh, baptism of the Spirit is predicted as well in Jeremiah 30, is it? Where it speaks of the new covenant. And he will, uh, give, us, he will give us hearts of, from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. We read about in Ezekiel, I believe it is. So we have all these statements about the um, the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Yeah. Let's see. Zoe Abundant says, <clears throat> how would you biblically define our fallen state? And how would this compare to the Calvinist view, total depravity, total inability? What are the key passages to understanding our fallen state? Okay, I probably can't give you like a whole rundown off the top of my head of all the key passages. So I don't want you to think that I'm able to do that um, just, you know, that quickly. I wish I could. I... Um, especially when it comes to Calvinists, because Calvinists will, to be honest, they'll find these passages in places where you didn't expect. And so it's a longer study to sit down and say, you know, give me all the passages you think related to our fallen state. Um, the basic view of Calvinism that I do actually reject, and I, I think is incorrect, but I don't want to misrepresent it, but it's, total inability is maybe a better descriptor than total depravity. So in Calvinism, you'll hear the T of Tulip, total depravity, um, and total inability is probably a better way to say it. What it basically means is that that you are in such a state in your flesh that would were God to reach out to you with the gospel of Christ, to have the Holy Spirit externally, you know, pulling on you, you know, drawing you, showing you the love of God, convicting you of your sin, and showing you that the gospel is true. Would God were God to do all that, were you to be fully aware of the truth of the gospel of Christ and fully aware that you're being invited to be forgiven? that you would always say no because your 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 state unsaved is such that you inevitably always say no. So in a sense this isn't really doesn't really feel like free will at all anymore. It feels like we're we're like in a 
state where we have an inability, that's the phrase, to say yes to the gospel. I will only always reject God. This is why then you have the doctrine of salvation or so the order of salvation they call ordo salutis in Calvinism, where they believe that the only way to get someone to say yes to the gospel is for God to actually regenerate them. So they get saved, they get born again, they are given the Holy Spirit, they become a new person. And now they have a different, the opposite of total inability. They have total ability. They have, they don't have the ability to say no to God. Now they can't help but love God, can't help but worship God, can't help but say yes to the gospel of Christ. And so this is, this doctrine is summarized with a very important and key, key term, phrase that's in Calvinism. If you understand this, you understand a lot of Calvinism. This is the phrase, ready? Regeneration precedes faith. That's the phrase. And this is, I think, what makes your lights go on. Oh, that's what Calvinism is saying in at least a big chunk of Calvinism. Regeneration, I get regenerated. I become born again. My heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. I become filled with the spirit. And now I'm in relationship with God. And now I can't help but believe in God. So you have God doing all the work of salvation. That's, they would consider this all work. Even the faith part. In you having faith is a response to the irresistible grace, there's another term they use, of God. So if you understand regeneration precedes faith, you understand a lot of Calvinism. It ties into the idea of total inability. It ties into the perseverance of the saints, um, irresistible grace. It all kind of connects together. Yeah. So do I think that that's true? No, I don't think that it's true. Um, and I, uh, I don't think I have a specific teaching on total inability, actually. That might be worth doing someday. I don't focus on Calvinism. I occasionally talk about it, but I consider Calvinists my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't start fires with Calvinists uh, because I think that we have we we do still hold hands in all the essentials, and these are things we can disagree on. <clears throat> all right, um, and I guess I'll summarize. I'll end by saying this: as far as that question goes, my view of our inability is that. Um, we have the, we are not able to save ourselves. We're not able to work for our salvation, nor are we able to do anything to commend ourselves to God. But God, he calls us by his Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, not regenerating us, but still working on us. Just like in before the flood, God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. See, God is by his spirit striving with people, even when those people aren't saved yet. So he's doing something in them or with them or to them to try to draw them to Christ. And I think that we can say yes. I think we have the ability to respond positively to the to the proclamation of the gospel with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is short of regeneration. And so, yeah, that would be my my short answer. Um, Honest Conversations says, okay, I answered that question earlier. John Doe has a question. How do folks know they are saved? I was taught tongues are salvific. I realize that isn't biblical, but I don't know how people know they're saved without physical evidence. The heart is deceitful. Yeah, it sure is deceitful. Um, Here's some thoughts for you, John. John Doe, if that is your real name. I don't care if it's your real name. You guys, In fact, if you guys have sensitive questions you want to ask me and you feel like your name is attached to them, you can always ask me questions. Make a new YouTube account. <laughs> That's, call yourself whatever you want. You know, I, I want to protect your privacy, but <clears throat> this is just the way we get the questions out. Um, how do you know you're saved? Okay, first you were taught that tongues were salvific. And that is, um, I think... 
spiritually abusive to people to teach them that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. I mean abusive. I mean that you cause trauma and damage in people's lives. It also causes a false assurance of salvation because tongues is, guess what, the easiest gift in the world to fake. And so if you have someone who at least even fakes speaking in tongues, now they feel they have assurance of their salvation. Instead of doing what's biblical, which is to examine two issues, is do I believe, right? Do I affirm from the heart? Do I affirm these truths? That's, a re that's not just a doctrinal test. This is a relationship thing. Do I trust in Christ? And if your answer is yes, that you actually trust in Christ, his death, his resurrection, these like essential Christian things, then the next question is, has my life been impacted by the work of God? And that's what First John is about. So I'd say read First John and know that practice is sin in, in the context of First John is about regular ongoing practice of sin, not just do you have, do you still battle with sin in your life? And I think the question we have to ask ourselves there, and it's a difficult and sobering question is, um, am I exhibiting in my life the reality of my salvation. And one way to do this is you ask yourself, what would I be like if I wasn't saved? And if you immediately go, oh yeah, man, my life would be so different. Like I'd be such a different person. Then that's evidence of your salvation. Isn't, is it not? Evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I think that that's pretty profound. And no, you don't know. The heart's deceitful and you don't know everything. But you're not called to have, um, uh, to sit there and second guess yourself all day long. I say, look at those two tests. Faith, and then transformation, and then move forward. And if you find yourself falling short in transformation, the only solution is to double down your commitment to Christ and to serve and seek him and to let God transform your life. The, the, the solution is never, oh, well, I guess I'll quit and I'll just, I'll just you know, backslide away from God because that's going to be a real good solution. <laughs> um, yeah. Anna Boshir says, um, hi, Pastor Mike. How often do you fast and do you allow yourself coffee while fasting? Thanks. Oh, that's a good question, Anna. Um, I think there is a variety of fasts that you can do. I don't know how often I fast. Um, I haven't done it in a while. Um, I think I did it more in the past and not as much recently. Um, I still do. and When I do, it tends to be for a shorter period of time, um, like for uh, a day or for a couple meals or something like that. And um, for me, it's important whenever I fast, I'm not just not eating. That's not that hard for me to do, actually. Um, I could go all day and not eat until dinner time, and I'm just busy, and I wasn't thinking about it. <laughs> so I want to make sure that I'm actually devoting myself to prayer and to seeking the Lord and to spiritual disciplines during that time. But um, I think that there's a variety of fasts, and I think that you should ask, you should just be like, well, what can I do to help me focus on, upon the Lord, help me deny myself, help me keep my heart centered upon him? and to learn how to say no to the flesh. So coffee is, is, is up to you. Although I'll say this, um, if you feel like you're trying to fast, but you're enjoying like, oh, I got a coffee, I got myself a fruit smoothie, and I got my, and you're starting to kind of like do all these things that really sort of undoes the fasting, then it may not have a lot of benefit. Um, William Fishsense says, AJ Bern, oh, because he sent it to AJ. Uh, I know that it's better than anything in this present earth, but what does it mean to be least in the kingdom of heaven? Oh, that's an interesting question. Let me, well, let's just say this. Least in the kingdom of heaven, because there are different, it seems in scripture, there's these different, like, um, I want to say levels, but I, the terms people use when, they, when they're saying what I'm about to tell you are often bad terms, I think. I don't think there's different levels of heaven, as though I'm in one level and you're in a different level and we're, like, not connecting with each other or something. I think that's weird. 
but there are different degrees of responsibility in heaven and maybe even different degrees of authority in heaven. And those things are distributed, it seems to me, without giving a long teaching on this, based upon the, the calling and the, and the faithfulness that God gave you in this life. And so that, I think, is pretty significant. Now, this is not whether you get into heaven, because everyone who gets into heaven, even the least who's in heaven, experiences several things. One, perfect, intimate, total relationship with God Almighty. This is what the old theologians call the beatific vision. This is the, the experience of the fullness of God to the, to the greatest degree you can experience this as a, as a created person. Everyone gets that. And so part of me is like, who cares what my job is in heaven or my responsibilities are, except when you see those in light of them, give, them being ways you can give love to God, you can honor Christ in ways that you can, uh, you can please him relationally. You can, you can bring him joy. And then I care. Then I care about it. But the fact is that my joy in heaven will be full to the least of those in heaven, absolute full joy. And I say heaven eventually heaven and, and earth there's a recreation and heaven meet earth and we're going to be living in a physical world and all that but um but with the fullness of a relationship with god with total fellowship and wonder uh, wonderful joy with each other in glorified bodies so the least of those in heaven is immeasurably wonderful yeah uh, trippy penguin says what's wrong with the shack um several things are wrong with the shack um what's right about the shack in <laughs> My quick opinion here, you guys. This is Q&A, right? This is what you get right off the cuff. Um, the Shack is a book that a lot of people find really helpful and really beneficial. They tend to be the same kinds of people that are a little bit theologically clueless or immune. I, I know I have a family member who's just like, they're kind of theologically immune. And it's weird. They'll read things like The Shack or questionable material. And they're just like, it's weird because it doesn't lead them astray. It doesn't seem to hurt them. But they also seem to just be like, they don't care. Or, or don't notice the weird theological stuff that's happening in those in those works. And so they're very much more on the heart level, just like, man, that really blessed me. And they like it. And then someone else is very much like theologically minded, and they're like, dude, that's heresy. And so we sometimes clash. It's good to know what language the person speaks so that you can deal with them where they're at and not overreact. But I would say The Shack um, is written by an author who is, a, he's an espoused universalist. He wants to dismantle um, what he sees as bad ideas about God. And some of those things that he thinks are bad ideas are just truths about God. And so in his book, he not only comes against those ideas, but he presents them like they're bad. He's giving you theology through storytelling. And some of that theology is erroneous. And so that would be what's wrong with the shack. Um, what's right about the shack is, is um, I don't know, it sold a lot of copies and a lot of people really liked it. Um, and it probably benefited them, but I'm not really the guy that's into like super touchy feely stuff either. So maybe it just, it doesn't connect with me. Um, Igor Konov, uh, Konovalchuk, uh, sorry, Igor, I know I totally mispronounced your name there. Um, says in James, it talks about how God will never tempt us, but in the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us to ask God not to lead us into temptation. Why is this? I also understand that the word used for temptation can be used as a test or trial, but with test or trial, James one thirteen doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So in James one let let's, let's tackle these separately. We want to understand the context of James. Um, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, 
I'm tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. And that is, um, that is the context we need to see. God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown brings forth death. One thing to note in this passage is that being tempted doesn't mean you're sinning, right? I have desires that are wicked and I'm being tempted by those desires, but I am not my desires and I have not yet sinned. But when I yield my, either either through fantasizing, I give my will over to those desires or through acting them out, now I'm sinning. But it's, it's, the problem is when people are going through temptation and they're like, man, um, my lust is so out of control. I just have so much lust. Why did God give me this? Or why is God presenting me like it's a pretty girl walks by and you're like, oh man, Lord, why are you doing this to me? You don't realize that you're, you wouldn't even be responding to this pretty girl that way if it wasn't for your actual lust issues that come from your own heart. You get this? Like your, your desire to do wrong things comes from your desires. Even though circumstances may impact and affect you, it comes from within. And so we need to be, you know, the humility that Christians are called to is always like putting ourselves out there as we really are. I'm actually a, 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 a person who's tempted with sin. Notice this. This is what he's talking to Christians in James 1. Right? Each, each Christians were tempted and drawn away by our own desires and enticed. We're not like perfect and wonderful and we have no wicked desires. Like Christians are, should be pretty open about the reality that I face temptation. The danger is that there are those who are open, but they don't think it's a big deal. And they feel like it's really healthy to be open about their sinful temptations, but those temptations aren't that sinful as far in their opinion they've kind of become accustomed to it or those who are quiet about it and never talk about it because they feel like those things are really bad uh, in all reality as a christian we can kind of do both of those things so okay james that's james 113 the other passage <clears throat> is the lord's prayer and that is um um matthew 6 Ah, okay. Um, so it has this phrase, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think honestly that this is just the way there, Jesus's way of saying like, lead us, you know, in this life away from temptation out of the plans of, of Satan to cause us to fall, the, the dangers of this world, help us navigate these things. So lead me, lead me not into temptation is like saying, lead me Lord, um, away from temptation. Do you get that? It's just, an, it's just another way of saying that. So I don't think, we, I think we read this too woodenly when we think that what it's implying is that God would be leading you into temptation, like as though he's going to tempt you. But even then, even if God led you into temptation in some sense, that wouldn't necessarily be the same as what James talks about. Because James is like, look, the source of you wanting to sin is coming from within you. That's the important thing. But we also read in Luke, in Matthew, uh, in Mark, that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the temptations or any desires that he experienced aren't coming from God. right? They're coming from the flesh, from the sin nature, from uh, the temptation of the world around him. They're not coming from God. But yet, that trial was something God wanted him to go through, um, ultimately to overcome temptation for us. So I don't think there's an issue there that needs to be resolved. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to take uh, one more question, I think. And why didn't, 
it, hold on, I'm going to make sure I didn't skip one here. Yeah. Okay. Bliss Stuff says, why didn't Jesus stone the adulteress if it was written in the law to stone those found in that sin? Um, okay. So this is, uh, I'm glad you asked this. I, sometimes you guys ask questions and I, I like actually get excited. Oh, I get to talk about that <laughs> because it's a common misconception. So great question. Thank you for asking. Um, okay. In the John 8 passage, there's, there's a whole question about the textual criticism of the passage. I'm not going to deal with that. But let's just set all that aside for a minute and say, why is it that Jesus wouldn't stone her? Isn't that what the law required? And this is actually something Jesus encountered a lot was them abusing the law. So when Jesus says like, um, you've heard, you've heard um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. Okay, so he's like, turn the other cheek, you know, bless those who curse them, all this kind of stuff. What he's doing is he's, he's dealing with a dynamic where they were not doing courtroom law but they were taking courtroom justice and they were trying to put it into normal everyday life. So they were not merciful people. That's what's happening here. So in the case of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's a courtroom. That's like when the judge is going, what will the penalty be? Well, you know, equal, equal scales, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So equal value of whatever the harm was done. But in daily life, if somebody like pokes you in the eye, you don't just poke them in the eye. Someone knocks out your tooth. You don't knock out their tooth. You go to the court and you let the court decide Okay, here's the penalty. You knocked out a tooth, you know, give him this, give him a, whatever, a chicken or whatever it is. Whatever the value of the tooth is, you give him that thing. Or even do that harm to them as a way of deterring that sort of violence in the future. But you don't just take revenge. That's what Jesus was against. Okay, in the same context in John 8, when we read about the woman caught in adultery, they're not following the law of Moses. They're like, let's stone her. This is not a courtroom. This is a mob. So one issue here is there's no courtroom. There's no witnesses being brought. There's no trial being had. There's no opportunity. Uh, for instance, in the law of Moses, if you were going to stone somebody, you accuse them as a witness. And if they're, if you're found out to be a liar, you get stoned, right? It's such a scary thing to, to abuse the law to kill someone who doesn't deserve it, that if you try to get someone killed abusing the law, you get killed. So this is this is the kind of stuff that would happen in a courtroom environment. But in John 8, it's nothing like that. It's just mob violence. So the mob's like, okay, being led by some of the leaders of the people, let's just kill her. That's one issue. Um, so Jesus is, is fully in his rights to just dis disperse the crowd. This is, this, is, this is mob rule and mob violence. Under the, in the name of the law, it's the very kind of thing he opposed even in the Sermon on the Mount. Another problem is this. They were under Roman rule. And under Roman rule, Israel was not allowed to engage the death penalty. And there is an Old Testament precedence for when Israel is, is in subjection to their enemies because of their rebellion against God, and he gives them over to the hands of their enemies, that they're just supposed to yield and, and, and be good citizens in the countries where God draws them or takes them or who, who God puts over them. So unless it's a time of deliverance, just yield, be a good citizen. Yielding means that they can't engage the death penalty. So by doing this, they were making two major flaws. They were trying to get Jesus to go against the law by doing mob rule and mob violence. And two, they were trying to get him to go against Rome, which would also be a violation of what where God had put them at the time. So they were trying to use the law to trick him into sin and put him in a tight spot to get him in trouble. So I think that that is hopefully going to give you the context. Um, the, the law is right that the adulterous person, man or woman, deserves death. But then again, the law was meant to show us that we all deserve death before God and that we need the salvation that there is in Christ. 
So the law was never given. I have a whole study on how to understand the Old Testament law. I have two videos on it. But the law was never actually given in an effort to get all governments to follow these same sets of rules. They were act it was actually meant in one respect to show us an impossible standard that we all fall short of so that we would feel and see our need for Jesus. Now we, now we see it in a new light. This is why the law for Israel was never given to all nations. It was just given to Israel. This is why in the New Testament, we're not given the law to the Gentiles. It doesn't spill over as we're under the law. Instead, we learn principles from the law. So I can go to the law and learn true principles, learn, tr learn true things, but we're not under the law. And um, yeah, so I want to affirm the law is good, but it also has a purpose other than being the law for all nations. I hope that helps. That's a summary of a bunch of stuff that I have in those two videos, and you're invited to go check that out. So I'm sorry for the large number of questions that I have not been able to get to. I want to try to keep the Q&A videos to like an hour, um, but again, if you guys really like this, let me know. Um, and the way you can, I mean, I don't ever do this, but the way you can let me know is by sharing it out, by by li clicking like and commenting on the videos and doing things that help it reach more people. Um, the goal here is I just want to be wise about the type of time and ways I do ministry with this online ministry. But if you love Q&A videos, I can do more, potentially. <laughs> uh, let me see that you love them and that it's not just something um, where I'll be spinning my wheels. So, yeah. And also, oh, I'll announce this. Um, um, thanks to Sarah Zimmerman, who's uh, who's the, our, our, my, my assistant now, which is weird to actually have someone to help with all this stuff. It's a huge blessing. She's actually got a catalog of me answering tons of questions from lots of different videos. And um, if you have questions, you can email us on BibleThinker.org and we'll let you know if we have the, that question is being answered in a particular video or maybe at a particular timestamp in a Q&A. We will try to get to that as much as possible. We may get we swamped with too many questions that we can't answer, but we'll do it the best we can. Like we're here, we're working all the time to bless you guys and we'll always do the best we can. Sorry for those questions I couldn't answer. Hope you have a really great uh, day and that you keep your eyes focused upon Christ. If nothing else, think about the least of those who will go to heaven and what that glory will be.